Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Adriana. I'm Sophia. And I'm Juliana. And we're really excited to bring you an episode today on tradition. I think this was a group idea. I can't remember who presented it, but I feel really excited about this topic. I think, one, because I went on a retreat in the fall on Dei Verbum, which is one of the documents from Vatican II on scripture and tradition. And also, it just like brought up for me how deeply both the church and outside the church, we misunderstand tradition and in culture and kind of see it as this like archaic fossilized set of customs or norms that we're supposed to like throw off in pursuit of progress. Mm-hmm. And it's a deep misunderstanding of tradition that pervades the church herself. So I'm really excited to talk about tradition, not as like an adjective, but more in the etymological sense, tradition comes from the Latin word tradere, which means to hand over. And it's actually like a verb, someone handing themselves over. So for me, tradition makes me think of the church as mother. And that's kind of what I want to be the lens in how we think about tradition today is a mother who hands herself over to her children and gives everything to them. Mm. And this is who I am. And I'm like giving my entire identity over to you in this pursuit of giving you life. So this idea of handing over and what has been handed over to us and what do we hand over to one another. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Adriana. And I think it shows the image of a mother handing herself over to her child really shows how essential it is for us to receive what she is giving to us. We have nothing that we have not received and received from the church. And I think this is so evident going back to the Gospels um, and the stories and the Acts of the Apostles, because we see that when Christ ascended, he didn't leave us a book of doctrines and he didn't leave us a script for how to live a good life. Or even the Bible. Correct, yeah. There's no Bible. There's no catechisms. Yeah. There's no rubric. He left us the living witnesses that had lived with him, that had memories of him, yeah. that had learned from his at his feet, the eyewitnesses that had seen everything that had happened. You know, he told us, do this in memory of me. And the apostles and the disciples, Mother Mary... That's what they did. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then they went out and, you know, baptized all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and passed on to them tradition, both orally and written, eventually in the scriptures. And this has continued throughout all of history. And so to cast away tradition or to misunderstand tradition, we are losing something essential to Christianity, because without tradition, we, are, we have nothing. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to understand this topic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well put, because this is God's method. Hearing you speak, Adriana, about handing over, mm-hmm. I reflected on how tradition reflects actually the inner life of God, right? The father yes. who hands himself over, his being over to the son. And we're recording now a few weeks after Christmas. And one of the CL Christmas posters from, I don't remember, a few years ago, had this quote from Bernard of Clairvaux, 
that includes this line, this is how he was pleased to come to our aid. Like next to a picture of the Virgin Mary with the infant Jesus in a manger, right? So underlining God's mercy and humility in coming to our aid as an infant in the incarnation. Mm -hmm. But this is also the method of God in the Eucharist and in the church. It's the same logic. It's the same method that the Father is handing himself over in Christ. Christ is handing himself over to us through the church and through the sacraments and the apostolic succession, as Julie said, the succession of individuals who are entrusted with the deposit of faith that reaches me. That's been the other point of immense um, beauty in my reflection in preparation for this episode is just this wonder at the fact that this chain that stretches back to Christ and therefore to the Father um, has reached me in a personal way through encounters with people who have proposed to me what Christ left those who loved him while he was on earth. So excited to dive deeper into this and to invite everyone into a reconsideration of what tradition is and how it operates in our lives. Yeah, I love what you're saying about God's method, Sophia, because that also just reminded me that like God's method includes human cooperation. Yeah. Mm. And precisely because he didn't leave like a static document or rubric, it's the desire for our continued human cooperation to hand over like the very first tradition, mm-hmm. if you will, is Christ himself, God giving himself over in the son. And we hand over Christ generation to generation, person to person. You know, we could ask ourselves, like, why would he choose such a haphazard way of, yeah. of handing himself on? Doesn't it seem easier that it should just be held in a static place? Yeah. But that's exactly also what he did in the incarnation in giving himself over to Mary, awaiting her yes. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to say yes. And she didn't have to um, continue to make every action of her life a yes. It isn't just the yes at the Annunciation. And he chooses that method now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Mary in this way because I was reflecting on the fact that I think that we're maybe a generation that's not fatherless in the sense that we haven't had an experience of true fatherhood, but a generation of people who have been so submerged in ideology that we've been taught to look at fatherhood as a constraint on our freedom, something that we should run away from out of fear or just out of a desire for a subjective happiness that we don't see as possible under obedience to an authority. And I really think that I don't know. I feel convicted that we should be asking for Mary's help in this because she's the one who taught Christ to obey the father. It was in obedience to Mary, the mother that Jesus grew in, as scripture says, grace and and wisdom and Mm -hmm. which is a mystery that, you know, I could ponder forever. But how did she do this? But by passing on her personal experience of what it was, as you were saying, to anticipate and say yes to the initiative of God in your life. Mm -hmm. Mary is one who her maternity is so tender and close to us in her humanity that I think she's the road back to the father for all of those who, for whatever reason, might have a difficult relationship with authority and fatherhood and a lack of an awareness of the fact that this authority is for us, like is a living presence for our good, for our growth, for our freedom and not against it. Yeah, I think that... In what both of you are saying, a couple of truths about tradition kind of emerge. And the first thing is the recognition that tradition is something that 
is alive. Yeah. It's living. Uh, Pope Benedict called it the river of new life that flows from its origins down from Christ to us. Mm -hmm. So we think of a river, it's not static, it's living, it's responsive to the needs and the circumstances of the times. Um, and it's really a movement of the Holy Spirit in the world. And the second is back to your example of the Annunciation, Adriana, and your call to the proper posture in front of authority, Sophia, is the fact that this implicates our freedom. I think part of the fear of authority and maybe the misunderstanding of tradition is this resistance to having something imposed upon us. Mm -hmm. We want to be free. We want our freedom to be engaged. And these desires sometimes mistakenly make us run away from these sources of authority instead of to engage them properly and how God wants us to. I mean, he's the, he's the lover of our freedom. Mm -hmm. And so this leaves me with a question, I guess, of what does it mean for us, for our lives, that tradition is living and that we are called to engage with it in our freedom? What does that look like? What is it? How should we engage with tradition? Yeah. Such a good question. I was actually going to ask you in a different form, in the negative. <laughs> like, okay, tradition is alive. So then without it, you're left lifeless or without a source of newness in your life, in approaching your problems and approaching the future. Has this been your experience of trying to live without tradition at any point in your life or any domain of your life? And how has instead, Julie, as you're outlining, the embrace of tradition generated within you a greater freedom. So yeah, do you have experiences that that help us see what the alternative is? I think I'm hearing three like facets, tradition, authority, and freedom that all go together. But only if we understand tradition, one, as alive, but two, as like a handing over of the entirety to the other. Mm. And I suppose I want to like really clarify just maybe for myself, what I see as the more common understanding of tradition, uh, which I think I see as it used as like an adjective. Mm -hmm. um, this church is more traditional than that church. Or I've also heard like, well, our church is really traditional too in friends attending different churches like that. That's the point of similarity. And so we're the same. Mm. And I think that's a really narrow understanding of tradition. Tradition does include, obviously, within your identity, like a set of customs and practices, but it's not reduced to that. And if it is just the set of customs and practices, then it becomes like dry and without context as it moves to a next generation. And it would eventually just become this sort of archaic set of rules that I'm following, but I don't know why I'm following it anymore because it made sense two generations ago or yeah. 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't apply to my reality now. And I see that is where we find ourselves. So then it becomes like repressive upon my freedom, like what you're saying, Julie. And I think that's just sort of the common mentality that's not exclusive to religion. You see that in pretty much all Western institutionalism right now, you know, even gender ideology, just this sort of like, I need to break away, I need to self-identify, and I myself am the authority, and no one can give me anything. Mm -hmm. So I see that tied into this rejection of tradition. But if we go back to tradition as handing over, or Sophia, you shared Father Giussani's definition of tradition, 
the whole set of beliefs and meanings into which a child is born. Mm-hmm. And I really love that because it matches this imagery that's already coming to mind as church's mother. And a child just receives everything, receives language, receives the understanding and in Jusani's term, like the hypothesis that they're lovable from the mother. Like Balthazar says, a child learns that she's lovable by the gaze her mother places upon her. Mm-hmm. And I think that too becomes a positive hypothesis that you present in your own critical thinking. Am I lovable by principle or not? And it's the mother and the father who first witness to that yes. And everything like with that, the primary education, and that being our understanding of tradition. So it's not something that we need to reject before examining. Yeah. That's where I see Father Giussani really bringing something. He, I, I don't think he would say new to the conversation, but mm-hmm. asking us to look at it in a different way. He's developing the tradition that he received in proposing tradition this way to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like what Giussani says about tradition and what you're recalling, Adriana, tradition as a hypothesis. And you said we shouldn't reject it without examining it. And I completely agree with that. But what I see in other aspects of the culture, and especially in my own heart, is we also shouldn't embrace it without questioning it and without examining it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's kind of the flip side. It's another reduction. It's another ossification of tradition. And for me, I think this is the stronger temptation, Mm. you know, to reduce tradition to this dead rubric and then follow it because it does away with this difficult work of engaging my freedom and it does away with individual Mm -hmm. discernment and looking for Christ's face in my circumstances. It's a false promise, but for me, it's, it's like a false promise to salvation. And that's much easier than the true promise of salvation involves a gratuitousness and it involves mercy and those things are difficult to to accept. So I really I really see this in my own life and I think a good example from scripture that the church also proposes to us often during Lent is in Isaiah um Isaiah 58 where he kind of calls us to a true fasting. Oh yeah. And speaking for the Lord he says, "You fast, you put on sackcloth and ashes." This is a paraphrase. <laughs> you put on sackcloth and ashes, but then you're fighting with each other and you're oppressing the poor and you're selfish. Why would I want that? You know, what I want is a fast that frees the oppressed. This is a day acceptable to me. And, you know, we see this in the ministry of Christ too, constantly challenging this uncritical, mm-hmm. this uncritical acceptance of tradition that makes tradition an idol. He calls people away from rigidity to recognition of the higher purpose of the law. And that's not to say that any of these things like sackcloth and ashes is bad, um, but this is kind of another way that it can be reduced. And for my life, for example, it can be tempting to take the proposals of the church. So for example, we're approaching Lent, pray fast and give alms during Lent and then be like, check, check, check. I did all those things. Great. I did a great job and not really examine the movement of my own heart and not really look at the places where my heart is not pure and where I am in need of the gratuitous grace of God. That was so great, Julie, because I think the church says tradition is alive in Dei Verbum, the document I mentioned before, uses the image of a divine wellspring, Pope Benedict, the river. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean that it's alive? And I think this is where Father Giussani is really helpful. And what you just witnessed to, Juliana, is that 
is it alive in me? Like, what does this handing over, how does this take shape in my own heart? And I love that example of Lent being given these observances to practice, but how easily and quickly they can become dead, ossified, like you said. And also the posture before that, when confronted with any criticism or pushback, I think becomes reactive and fearful because we ourselves have lost Mm -hmm. contact with reality. This tradition, we've made it into an ideology Mm -hmm. and like an idol, like you're saying, but but instead, through the integration with your own experience, this is alive for you again. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Drawing my attention again to the fact that authorities, people we follow, guides, even rubrics are essential. The form is essential. But as you recalled us to at the start, Julie, it's tradition is also a life. And so the form and the life go together. And if you don't verify that there's a life in the form for you, how can you pass it on to another? I just spent a few weeks with family and in particular the time that I spent with you, Julie, and my goddaughter, Elena. I was very moved by the thought of my responsibility to communicate to her the faith, that this is one of the most serious tasks that the Lord has given me on this earth to do. Mm -hmm. And obviously feeling inadequate in front of that. How do I generate the life of God in another, right? And yet also having the opportunity to visit with Jala, my dear friend in college who converted and I was able to be her godmother. Mm -hmm. And yet my experience with her so clearly showing me that I can only pass on what I receive. I really felt in her conversion journey, I was so poor and so new on the path of Christian discipleship that I don't understand how the Lord did this. But all I had to do was continue looking at him and following him and asking him to make me grow in my relationship to the mystery. And because she was next to me, somehow he reached her through me. Obviously, I desired this, but it wasn't a project of mine. And it wasn't because I embodied the tradition of the church in like a perfectly coherent way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that brought me so much comfort in thinking about Elena and and the many others uh, whose faiths I would love to participate in nurturing. Because yeah, I'm, I'm inadequate, but I can pass on the infinite to her because this is what I receive from the church. And so there's no objection and there's no reason for fear. The only task of mine is to really work to embody this tradition and propose it to her freedom by duly like trying to answer all these questions that you said you and I and I'm sure a lot of other people would rather not answer because it's easier to remain in our moralism and just trying to be to be a good person, do the right things and without asking like, who are you Christ for my heart and how are you coming to me today? And what is the yes that you desire from me today? I don't know if that was clear, but. No, it is because it also points out what Giussani says, like mm-hmm. he says the stature of his person is just the result of being faithful to a teaching he received from real masters. Oh, yeah. His teachers in seminary. That's what you're – you're ultimately not the authority of what you're passing on to Elena. I guess I, I feel really excited to share that Sophia has another godchild. I'm expecting <laughs> – <laughs> Yes! Yay! Um, and we asked Sophia to be the godmother. So she has another person now to pass on the infinite. Growing responsibility. She's a great godmother. Highly highly recommend if you're looking for a godmother. <laughs> Send the babies my way. <laughs> so, yes, I'm 
20 weeks pregnant and expecting in June, and then we'll see Sophia for the baptism of our third baby. So keep us in your prayers. But back to tradition. Mm. Father Giussani, just like emphasizing this is what's been handed over to him, helps us to place a different lens upon authority to go back to authority as fatherhood, mm. which you've provided for us as a as an image, and I really appreciate. You said somewhere um, that the father may be a point of reference for the child, but the verification of what has been given down always belongs irreducibly to the child. Yeah. And that combines for me this understanding of receiving what has been given and then verifying that within your own freedom and that being a critical task for the flourishing of your humanity and the becoming of your person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And crucially there, you see that we don't choose our teachers in the tradition. We find them, we recognize them, we use our freedom to adhere to them, but we don't choose who serves as an authority in the tradition for us. Yeah. Jala wasn't like, oh, hmm, like who should I go learn about Christianity from? Yeah. Sophia seems like a good, no, that the Lord is the one who gives us authorities along the path. And so it's his criteria and his values that we are adopting, that we are learning through following these authorities, not my voluntaristic self-affirmation by choosing some guru who I think is going to make me perfectly happy and fulfilled in this life. And this holds even the Pope or the head of CL right now, or like these people are fleeting, right? We just had the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and just before that, a change in, in the leadership of CL, and these people are fleeting, but the Lord chooses them asks us to follow them for a time so that we can be converted and have our minds, as St. Paul says, renewed, transformed to become more like Christ's. Um, and so I think it's really essential that we don't see the embodiment of authority and an attractive witness as something that we have to go rummage through the church and find who those people are. We are struck. And in my own life, I can say that a lot of the authorities in terms of the faith for me and in terms of science and education, every domain of my life, these aren't always the people who are like famous and well-spoken and in public positions of responsibility, um, or even people who others see as authoritative in a tradition. Like some of the strongest authorities in my life are people who are entirely unknown. But the way that they embody the tradition is so compelling to me that it's clear to me the Lord has put them in my life as a teacher, as someone to follow. Mm -hmm. And so I follow unhesitatingly. Exactly as as you're saying, Adriana, because they're not the ultimate person that I'm who I'm following is, uh, in the case of the faith, is Christ who reaches me through this person. Yeah, that brings to mind for me um, generating traces. One of the works of Father Dusani, and one of the first chapters when he talks about Jesus's meeting with John and Andrew, and everything you're saying is just the gospel. Like Jesus also proposes himself to us. Father Dusani expounds on. Jesus meeting John and Andrew and how quickly and simply they, where are you going? We want to follow you. And you're the Messiah. And they give themselves over to him. And Father Giussani's like asking like what happens here that they, yeah. if not, but that at that moment, Jesus corresponded to the desires of their heart and perfectly satisfied them. So they take this reality before them, Jesus coming to them, him proposing themselves to him as he does to every single one of us. But then again, we are in the posture of John and Andrew. Does this correspond to the elementary needs of my heart? Mm -hmm. Are my desires satisfied right now? 
And that's proposed to each and every one of us. And it does require an education. It's like yeah. to know or to love first. It's both hand in hand. Um, but first, too, like a posture of openness that the possibility of an authority is available to me, where I see us becoming more and more closed off to even the possibility of Christ, to even the possibility of God. Um, and I don't want to say it makes it impossible for him to reach us, but it does definitely makes it a lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the example from my own life and probably from the lives of many others that most clearly brings to the forefront what we've been talking about authority is the example of the family yeah. and the domestic church and the authorities in my life that were that are my parents. Um, because talk about givenness. I mean, you don't nobody gets to choose their parents. And when you become a parent, you don't get to choose your children. They're given and yet it's our it's our first authority. And it's authority that lasts your whole life. And I think it also shows what you were saying about your experience with Jala, Sophia, being an, an authority is most effective when it's the sharing of a life and not standing in front of a chalkboard and writing out some grand thesis because this is how parents teach. This is how my parents taught me. It was a life lived together and these memories I have that continue to unfold throughout my adult life. And so, for example, I think about how throughout our childhood, our parents pointed us to the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that took various forms, you know, proposing a book, a piece of art that was beautiful, taking us to a museum, going to the mountains, but also pursuing beauty in their own lives. And this in me planted a love of beauty mm-hmm. and a recognition of the importance of beauty in my own life. And they did the same thing with their love of truth. And these things that in particular, I was reflecting on traditions I received from my parents in preparation for this episode. And I realized, to go back to another thing that we were saying, they didn't come up with those. Those are traditions that they received from the church and they pass along Mm -hmm. to their children as their first educators, as the domestic church. And that now I hope to pass along to my own children. And I recognize that, you know, my daughter's only about one and a half, so (laughs) very early on, but I can already see how the handing over it is living. It does develop over time. The way that I want to teach my daughter these things is going to look different because she's a different person and I'm a different person and we live in a different time in a different place with a different community. Um, and yet the truths remain the same and they're truths that are traced back to a divine revelation and the encounter of God with man. I love that example because I think it I mean, first of all, because of my tremendous gratitude for our parents, how, how good of parents they are and how well they propose to us a tradition that has now become my own and has made me enjoy life so much more, um, has given me a much more human life. But also because what you're saying points me to a criterion that we can use to judge whether or not we're living tradition well, or a given community is living tradition truly, or a given church is has a proper notion of tradition. And that's ecumenism. Like, I think the capacity to recognize and affirm truth in traditions outside of your own, if you can do that, and you can do that well, rooted securely in your possession of the truth, but generous in your acknowledgement of the slightest trace that you find of it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I think that's a sign that you're living tradition as something that has reached you through another, but become your own so much so that it's your identity in the world. 
and so you're not fearfully clinging to this set of Adriana, as you were saying, uh, rights and rubrics and ideas, but you have a living relationship with one who is truth. And so when you see him somewhere, you're like, oh, there he is. And I feel that way about how our parents educated us in beauty. Like we have vastly different tastes, some of us <laughs> in music and art and literature and all these things, but yeah. they have a capacity to affirm the ways that we find beauty in our own lives that to me indicates that their relationship with beauty himself is true and living and real. Um, and I think this is one place where, especially in the States, at least that's the context I'm most familiar with, the church has a lot of room for growth. I can think of schools that label themselves traditional schools. And Adriana, as you were touching on this sort of oppositional relationship to the world, what you end up seeing is that education in the tradition of the church is warped into formation into one who battles against contemporary society, mm-hmm. who retreats from it. Or who, who fears it. Exactly. And this oppositional gaze is such an impoverishment because the tradition of the church is something that opens us up to everything. It gives us the criteria for interpreting everything and finding what's true, good, and beautiful inside of it and makes us, this is what Jesus means. You're the salt and light of the the world. And this is a, a sadness for me because I so sympathize with these schools, these communities that long to recover some of what has been lost in this process of secularization that as Max Weber says in his awesome lecture that you should go read science as a vocation that we've lost we've made religion just one sphere among many and so there's no common standard of evaluation among them and so you can't have a unified life anymore i totally sympathize with the effort to then say okay well then let's have a school that really proposes the tradition of the church so that these students learn they don't have to make an intellectual sacrifice to embrace religion on the contrary like this is something that makes all of the rest of it possible but you you but they're so often going astray in this and i don't know how apart from again living my own relationship to the tradition of the church in a different way how we can recall people out of this because once you start retreating and closing yourself up in a silo it's very hard for something to break in i appreciate that sophia i receive that even as like as a corrective of my own oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really it strikes me why i saw that as a corrective is because i you know, like Peter in the Transfiguration, desire to just like grasp onto Christ mm. and like, let's stay up here forever, Lord, instead of letting him continue to reveal himself to me in the way that he chooses and to remind me again that he's the authority, not that he's given himself to me and now I get to become the authority, mm-hmm. which I think is always a constant temptation in my own heart Mm. to no longer want to continue to receive and to like be in the posture of a child it's tied up with a desire for control but perhaps also a fear of going you know astray and i think the church and jesus by handing himself over in the church has given us those like guardrails as chesterton says like guardrails around the cliff so that we won't fall off over the edge if we give ourselves faithfully over to the church mm-hmm. while also in a posture of openness and receipt. So maybe also there's like an element of trust there. Like, do I trust that this posture of openness won't let me fall astray? Yeah. Yeah. As Jusani says, you can't build except upon a certainty. That said, I think another important point to make here is that these guardrails are 
also developing dynamic as Newman would talk about in terms of doctrine, but also just in terms of the practices of the various traditions that we inhabit. I think of, again, my vocation to science, uh, the various institutions that we belong to, including our families, our schools. These traditions are given to us not to be fossilized or repeated blindly, but so that we can use our freedom to improve them, to change them if necessary, which we can only discover by embracing the tradition, right? We can only, again, we we just lost Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and one of his great contributions to this area of thought is the distinction between a hermeneutic of continuity and a hermeneutic of, I think what he calls rupture, it could be discontinuity, but he draws a distinction between this sort of stage-like model where in order to renew or change the institution that you belong to, doctrine, you have to begin again from the start, introduce something new from your own hands, rupture with what's gone before. And I think we see this in the fragmentation of the many denominations of Christianity, for example. Or a hermeneutic of continuity where you say, no, there is something here that needs enrichment, needs clarification, needs redirection, but I'm going to do it from within. Reform comes from within and from the study and recovery of history. That's a difficult dynamic to get right, at least in my own life. I see this in particular in my relationship to neuroscience. There's a temptation to doubt the value of the field as a whole when I see its problems. I want to like distance myself from the field of neuroscience and just adopt this kind of skeptical posture that can point out all the flaws and yet doesn't build anything new because there's a hermeneutic of rupture there. But instead, I have to take the working hypothesis of what neuroscience is, the study of the human person through the brain, and then use my own freedom to say, okay, I'm going to put this hypothesis in action. I'm going to generate something new that's truer to the tradition and takes the field of neuroscience in a better direction. Mm -hmm. And anything less than that, I mean, on my part, is a failure of my own identity as one who has received this tradition. Um, But I don't know if you guys have examples of this in terms of the faith or tradition of the church or the domestic church, I think could be another helpful place to look at this, uh, because I think it's crucial if we're going to get this understanding of tradition right. Um, I see this as like one of the major topics that brought about Vatican II is like the transmission of the faith, also like continuing in John Paul II's the new evangelization, and not being like new as if it's ruptured, but new as like Professor Fagerberg describes the development of tradition as like um, a fruit roll-up, (laughs) <laughs> and all of it's there, but it continues to be it took me a second infinitely to unrolled. <laughs> I know I laughed before I even shared it, but it stayed. I, I think I heard that like five years ago now, and I always think of it. So I think it's a good image. Yeah. In particular, I'm thinking of Lumen Gentium and the really emphasized place that the church gives to the universal call to holiness and Mm -hmm. the lay apostolate, but really uplifting the role of laity. That's not new, but it is an expounding. Yeah. And I see that before the podcast we were talking about, we see that in the emergence of CL as a movement in a charism of the church. Opus Dei could be another example. Like these means of helping us live the universal call to holiness, this emphasis placed in Vatican II, which is an event in time that happened in the 60s Mm -hmm. recently. 
that isn't new tradition, but it is like a development for sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. For me, also the example of lay movements came to mind because lay movements are firmly within the heart of the church, the sons and daughters of the church. They demonstrate, even if one does not belong to a particular movement, different ways that the tradition of the church can be lived. And so I think in that way, they're helpful for all of us. I also think about the particular traditions that are unique to different parts of the world. So, Mm. for example, the devotions to the different Marian apparitions, Lourdes, Fatima, or devotions to particular saints. I think about, unfortunately, I think this is something that is lacking a little bit in the United States, maybe because the newness of our country. But I think about, for example, the towns in Italy that have devotions to saints from there and hold great festivals and feasts for the feast of their saint. Those are ways in which the tradition of the church can be unique to a particular place in time, can evolve. And I think even those of us on the outside can really learn from that. Um, We see a different facet of the diamond of the church. And I think to this point, it reminds me of this quote that I saw in a homily of Pope Francis, but he was actually quoting um, a Christian scholar. He calls tradition a conversation with the past. And he says, a tradition is a remembering where we are and when we are, and then remembering that it is we who have to decide how that conversation continues. We have to carry on the conversation. I think this, for me, is a helpful way of thinking about these different developments as a conversation with the past that remains the same, the thread is one, and yet it goes on through history. Yeah, I think for me, the personage who most comes to mind when I think about profoundly changing tradition through belonging to it is St. Benedict and how clearly the Lord used him to renew and change the church. Again, not through a project of his own, not through starting something new, but through living the relationship that his life had with the mystery, by looking around at Rome, at the decadence of the society and the divisions among literally two antipopes who had armies of monks killing each other, a kind of scandal that we can't even imagine now. And what did he do but left and lived in a cave for a few years until the Lord started sending him spiritual sons? And that was the origin of Benedictine monasticism. That was the force that shepherded the church and Western civilization through centuries of darkness and difficulty and assault. So much of what we have now in the Liturgy of the Hours, liturgy in general, religious life, um, comes from St. Benedict. And another intercessor that came to mind was St. Catherine of Siena, who mm-hmm. would write to my brother Matteo gave me Catherine of Siena socks for Christmas and because she's my patroness. And one of the things that's on these socks is little letters that start babbo, which is like the Tuscan way of saying daddy. And this is how she would start her letters to the Pope, who was in Avignon at that point. She was correcting him, vehemently objecting to actions that he was taking on behalf of the church that she saw as wrong and warning him about the dangers to his soul and the souls of so many people. And yet he would, she would start these letters with babbo, with daddy. 
a woman who so knew that she belonged to a tradition that it was her tradition that she could take these a laywoman, young woman could give these extraordinary correctives to the supreme pontiff of the catholic church so clearly in these two figures i see intercessors and examples for us in what are going to be much smaller ways in terms of the scale of the church but julie you mentioned the domestic church adriana you mentioned local communities like i think we have a responsibility to do the same in the communities that we find ourselves in Mm -hmm. through living our own relationship with the mystery and being available to how he wants to send us to as as prophets um always starting as we've talked about time and again from the conversion of our own hearts and being recalled to the truth of what it is that we've received thank you sophia i love those examples of the saints I think we should probably wrap up. This has been such a great conversation. It has felt very alive for me. And I really appreciate both of your insights I'm going to be taking with me today. Do either of you have a media recommendation? Yeah, I was actually going to recommend Les Miserables, Mm. Um, particularly the character of the bishop. I know some people aren't up for picking up like a 1,200-page novel, but I also really like the new adaption that's with Hugh Jackman, it's like a musical. Yeah. I think the bishop is beautiful in that too. And you see a real handing over of like his whole self to Jean Valjean Mm. and how that slowly through the life of Jean Valjean converts him and like keeps coming back to him and is really um, showcased in the ending too. So I'd recommend that as a media recommendation. Yeah, interesting and provocative, too, to think about the context of uh, the revolution and the fact that Victor Hugo would have been writing as a a romantic humanist. I think there are a lot of themes there when it comes to tradition that we could unpack more. It would be a really fruitful source of reflection. So thank you for that. I've got a monthly challenge for us today. Um, I was thinking about, as I mentioned, with great gratitude, the many teachers and authorities who have imparted to me the tradition, particularly the tradition of the church, um, my parents, theology professors, saints. And I guess I would invite all our listeners to identify one person in particular in your personal history who has done this for you, who's been an authority, who's not only communicated ideas, but as we've talked about, actually embodied a life and proposed this to your freedom. So I would just ask you to take the time to reflect on what you received through that living witness. And if you feel so moved, like reach out to them to have a conversation or to say thank you. And to think too about how you might be an authority for another, regardless of your personal adequacy, as we talked about before. So Yeah, so that's my monthly challenge. I love that, Sophia. And maybe to bring it back to your last point, think in particular about how you are called to hand over what you've received from those authorities in your own life and in your own community uh, and the people that the Lord has given you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Thank you all so much for joining us. It's been a real joy. Please keep praying for us and we will be praying for you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate and review. And hand it over to a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Got him. (laughs) Um, You know where to reach us. We would love to hear from you. May God bless you all. 